I don't. I hope this is okay to talk about. Welcome to The Original Doll. I'm your host, James Rodriguez. On The Original Doll, I unpackage music with the people who create it. So you get to hear directly from the creatives themselves. And I read them letters from you all, fans of their music. And we get behind-the-scenes stories about the creation of these great, iconic songs. And at the same time, we help out charity. For every question or guest answers, we get items donated to those in need. For more information, visit www.theoriginaldoll.com. Big shout-out to my Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for your support, because you can keep this thing going. And as with every episode of the original doll any audio recording ripping stealing is strictly prohibited in every country in the world now on with the show this is the original doll i am james rodriguez and this is my theme song iconography all right everyone i would like to welcome you back to the original doll with james rodriguez on the original doll i unpackage music with the people who create it we go behind the scene and learn all about these great songs and iconography and all the people behind it because it does in fact take a village and at the same time we help out charity so for every question our guest answers we get items donated to those in need we help out homeless lgbt plus teens we help out women and children in domestic abuse shelters and for more for more information visit instagram the.originaldoll now today we are joined by somebody who has been somebody who has literally had so many different hats on composer arranger musician producer comedian novel reader and traveler and more so today i'm going to do something a little bit differently and listeners i know many of you have asked me to ask this lovely guest how to pronounce his name so we are going to start here so today's lovely guest <laughs> can you please introduce yourself so we can clear up any misinformation on the pronunciation of your that's, name that's such an easy question john philip chanel John Philip Chanel. There you go. Everyone, did you hear that? There we go. <laughs> I think it's so many people. And and listeners, to be honest, we were just talking a little bit before this where we are both readers. So sometimes we've just in our mind pronounced names differently or words differently. And then when it comes because to- Because of our isolation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> of the world. Pandemic, I loved. I was like, oh, I don't have to have to do anything outside. I'm fine with that. <laughs> I love it. Well, John, thank you so much for being here today. I oh, truly appreciate it. And, and listeners, this is another one of those, we're in completely different time zones by a lot. <laughs> I am here in Chicago. And our lovely guest is in Berlin. Oop, should I tell the people or if they find you? <laughs> they already know where I am. I mean, the people oh. that are looking for me, I'm, I'm assuming they're they're waiting till after this interview to, you know, oh to do that thing they do. <laughs> Which is a great song from a movie. Um, but <laughs> I love it. So what I want to do is go back through because your career has literally figuratively gone through decades gone through genres so i want to take us all the way back to the beginning when did music become a part of your life when did that attachment to music begin um i was very young uh i, I mean just a, a quick background my my parents my um my dad did play instruments 
early on, but uh, you know, had a family. Left actually left school at at at, at, uh, at sixteen. You know, in the old days, uh, had earn earn a living for his family and all that. So, but he he was an avid reader and an avid music listener ultimately. And my mother, to a certain extent, had the same kind of appreciation. So I grew up in a musical experience, but not necessarily a musician's experience. But they always had a piano and 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 at five I came back home. I remember this actually. I came back home from church. Um and I started it was a long mass, a high mass, and I started imitating what I had heard just and that's basically where it started. And um, I started listening more and more to classical music and, and, and my parents got me a whole series of what's interesting because ultimately this is, it paved the way to who, to my spectrum of music that I listen to now, because they got me a series of books for children, a series of records for children that uh, covered every country and you know, had wow. normal Benjamin Britten uh, ch children's uh, young person's uh, guide. They um, they gave me this, this collection that I I, I would go, go through all of it. I loved you know Nut Nutcracker and symphonic stuff, and I also heard music from China, music cowboy music. You know, at that time it was cowboys, which was great, <laughs> and um, the whole spectrum of things. And oh, I grew up with that, and and I started playing the piano at the same time. They finally gave me lessons at 12 for a couple of years, but basically I'm self-taught. I started reading scores for, for Prokofiev and Stravinsky, even though I didn't know what the notes meant, but I identified the graphics with um, the sound. I mean, I, and, and eventually, you know, by the end of high school, I was reading, but I was also composing. So I started emulating the music that I was hearing. I was seeing, even though, I was not formally trained, but I was just obsessed. I was obsessed with Ravel and Stravinsky and, uh, and uh, you know, Zoltan Kodai and Leos Janacek and all the Central European, you know, progressives. And, um, you know, that's it, it, it. I went to music, I went to, I, but I was a scientist at the same time. I was studying physics and calculus and all that. I went to college. I went to college for physics and then, uh, the next year I switched to music, took the test to go into, and, and then a year later I was gone. I left. I, I couldn't stand. I mean, physics I could have dug, but I couldn't get through calculus, uh, whatever, you know, I didn't know. Way, how could... was that? How was that transition though, from physics to music? Like, well, well, here's the thing. I started really in science massive and then eventually, uh, moved to, um, uh, to music through high school so by the time i got to uh college i i was already in transition and then i i took the tests to get into school it just so happens because i was self-taught i knew much of what the entrance was to the music thing um and so i focused on music and then eventually the next year after that i went on the road for the first time and i stud continued my studies but i i'd like to say that the, at that time music was taught in a very poor way music theory is a really problematic thing for me because it, it took me 10 years later to finally discover henry shankar which is a theorist in in uh, 19th century theory that blew up my mind and i finally said oh this is music theory mm -hmm. So all the Walter Piston and all the stuff that was being taught to me, I really felt uncomfortable because 
why? What mm-hmm. what does this mean? So when I when I studied Henry Schenker, this was in 1980. This was after the Beach Boys and just before Janet Jackson. Um, when I studied it, it literally changed the way I played. It changed the way I looked at music. It changed the way I I did sessions. It changed the way I arranged. I composed, and and all it was was like a vision. It was a mm. perception of how to perceive the layers in music. It, you know, it's it. Anyways, back to <laughs> going back to the growth. So anyway, so I went on the road and I played in clubs for basically that ten years, um, but playing all kinds of different music. And at that time in the seventies, a band, a, a a person could study music while they're learning how to play all these other uh mm-hmm. styles and so and and a lot of the bands in the beginning were funk bands and and um you know i did sessions uh for but small little sessions for you know unknowns and no record label just playing so that was basically most of the 70s but by the time the 80s oh, the, the one interesting band i did was i worked with gregory hines in the mid um uh, in the mid seventies, we we had a band together in in Venice, California, and um, and I'm mentioning this for two reasons. First of all, you know, Gregory is is it, it was an interesting, very interesting band. Actually, the first time you're professionally recorded. But what was also interesting is that the girlfriend of the guitar player in our band, we broke up five or six years later. She's working with Giorgio Moroder. George. Okay, wait. So I get a call mm-hmm. in 1981, and I'm about ready to leave clubs completely. I get a call from her, and she says, you know, Giorgio's looking for a synthesis. And I remember you used to be so into synthesizers. And here's the thing. I didn't have a synthesizer, but I read every book I could get on the theory of synthesis and acoustics because I'm a reader. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't have, I couldn't afford a synthesizer, but I knew everything. So when I got, I finally got one and, you know, it was like, okay, yeah, whatever. And, you know, started using it. So by the time she called me, the timing was perfect. She remembered that I was a maniac and she, and, you know, she said, Giorgio, you should check this guy out. Isn't that crazy? And that was the start of a whole line. There were other lines that led to, you know, other albums but this was one solid line that ultimately led to janet jackson to uh uh david and david which was a proto alternative band and then and eventually to tory and to tracy chapman and to a bunch of other things that don gaiman was doing so um you know that just that that alone that's just one lot you know and it and it shows you I mean, the one thing I draw from this is, first of all, don't be an ass. Mm-hmm. Be able to be in a room with people. And number two, always be ready and you be passionate continuously and always never be afraid. Even if you don't get a call, even if nothing happens, be ready because there'll be a moment or more moments that that will make the next move in your life. But if you're unprepared and if you're hiding in your room or wherever you end up mm-hmm. in a tent or whatever in the backyard, however you express yourself, you you'll you won't be ready. These things come into your life and you have to and also you have to have the perception of seeing the opportunity. So you just have to keep open 
And you have to be in love with what you want to do. You have to be passionate about what you want to do and be in love with it and be able to endure those moments when nothing's going on and you feel like, oh, it's not going anywhere. No, it just you stay passionate and you stay ready and stay exercised and practice. Learn whatever you can learn. Like I used to tell many of the 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 um, spec deals that I would do with artists, I would say, you know, they'd ask me, what should I do? Mm-hmm. Now that we finished our six songs for this record, I say, well, we'll t- bring it out there. So you take an acting class, a language class, learn how to play an instrument. Mm-hmm. But, you know, because these are like singers, you know, that, mm-hmm. that have everything but don't have the rest of it. And, you know, some of most of them didn't take me up on that. Most, And then nothing happens. Again, it's like being a triple, triple threat in New York. And whatever you have to have, you absorb as many skills as you can as an instrumentalist, uh, maybe pick up another instrument, you know, they can, they work more, you know, I, I, I didn't, I was too focused on what I was doing, but you know, that might be another way of doing it. Learn how to play the drums and the guitar, anything that you, but, but, or learn a language or, or, you know, Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be in music. I mean, that's the beauty of, of, I think, the beauty of someone's professional life mm-hmm. is that you you write it. It's like an open university. You're, you're writing your life. You, it is yours. You you can decide what you do and what you learn. All And nothing will be wasted. Well, what I've liked is at first when you said, you know, the physics to music, I'm like, wait, what? But then when you explain your love of music and how music is to you, it's like, you're still this researcher. You're somebody who's reading the research, figuring out how to do it and being in the field doing that. And it's like, oh, to me, I was like, this makes sense right there. What you, you just you, said makes sense. And that totally you've nailed it. been playing right. outside of that one toolbox. Like right. when I go through your discography, I'm always like, wait, what? He, he worked on this. I'm so confused because so many times it's like, Here's, let's say, Swedish producer A. Of course they did A, B, C, D. But then it would be like going, here's this. But then they also did this instrumental version of this movie composed by Tim Burton, but also did this Broadway show. And also did, and I'm just like, where, what? And it makes sense because you're always trying things just out and always wanting to explore and live. And I think that that's something that when I look at the people you've collaborated with, a lot of these artists have been able to be more than just a one hit wonder, more than just that one song that, you know what I mean? Like there's so many times where we look at these artists in general and go, how have they kept going? Like, even if Mm. Tori, it's like, because she, she's going all over the, some people might be like, Oh, it's just, it's like, but when you listen to those things, you go, a isn't the same from B B is not the same from C. And there you are like along for the ride going, let's, let's, let's go. Yeah, I, I I did a lot of pop music in, in the 80s, mm-hmm. uh, you know, starting with Janet. And um, I, I, and I have to say, I really enjoyed uh, that experience because, you know, it was interesting. It was challenging. And, you know, uh, I liked her. I didn't know her very well, but she would show up and she would just sit in the back while I was working and programming and composing. And she wouldn't say anything. And I wouldn't even know she was there. I mean, mm. literally, she would sneak into the back or, you know, I'm not saying she sneaked, but, you know, quietly <laughs> yeah. came in, quiet as, you know, just sweet. 
And, you know, and I'd turn around, I'd feel there's somebody in back of me, and I'd turn around, oh, hi, <laughs> and say, oh, hi, Phil. <laughs> she'd, be so, sit, she'd sit there, she'd sit there for like, you know, 15 minutes before I even knew she was there, because I'm uh, listening uh, to so yeah. what I want to do is we have a couple of questions from fans now that we're on this this Janet Jackson part is right. oh Mark by the way it was through Giorgio it was through Giorgio that um and Pete Pilati who actually I missed I'm going to see him when I come back uh, to London I hadn't seen it I haven't seen him in twenty or thirty years so you know the guy who wrote all of the yep. Donna Summer That's... stuff and Janet Jackson song it's just it's weird it's weird that you called because it was like <laughs> <laughs> the synergy of life. You're like, I need to make this happen. I need to make that go. <laughs> so then, so it was the, the question for Marco from Spain. He said, how did you get involved in the Janet Jackson project? Oh. Now we know that that string. Dominique from Atlanta, Georgia asked, did you work on any other songs for Janet Jackson? And can you talk a little bit about where you were at creatively when the Dream Street project was being worked on? That was oh, Dominique from wow. Atlanta. That's a good one. Um, yeah. So it was an it wasn't the earliest projects I had already done. I think I had done two records with Rick Springfield, um, one or two, and so and I did the and then ancillary singles and things were happening. So by the time I got to George, see I already worked with Georgia previously, and then there was a gap, and then you know I started doing whatever, and then um, Giorgio said he had this project coming up. So he called me back in to, to work with um, Janet. So Pete was kind of the, the, he was a producer on it. And so we started doing songs by other people. You see the other songs on that one side of the record. Um, but I did a lot of that. I did actually the playing on a lot of those songs. So I did participate in other songs, but I wrote one song, Dream Street, uh, co-wrote with Pete. Um, you know, we were trying to go for uh, a, a, a more modern pop electronic sound uh the second invasion electronic you know the in electronic invasion from england was happening so we were um part of that was our you know we were exploring that in the context of the other material and in the, in the context of the song uh god i'm just i'm thinking i'm reliving the the um our, the composition process in the yeah that was a lot of fun so we came up with, um, you know, I, I came up with some ideas and then uh, Pete would riff on the lyric. This was on the song uh, Dream Street. And then uh, Arthur Barrow uh, came up with this great bass part. And then we moved it around a little bit. And then um, I, I was working on other songs on the record. And then ultimately, I did not hear anything for a while because I went on, uh, you know, I finished that project. Uh, I went on to do some other things and then I, I heard what came out of it and it was like, wow, okay, this is like, I like this. This is, I mean, it was a good record. And I, I, but, but here's what's crazy. So about two years later, Rhythm Nation, was Rhythm Nation the first breakout? Control. Control was the Control, next Controllers, yeah. right. Control was the next writer. And when I heard Control is, what, who is this? When I was 17, I did what people told me. Mm -hmm. I mean, is this is this 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 little quiet girl in back? I mean, she was very she was very young when we were working with her, but she wasn't that much older when Control came out. And I was just so proud of her. I was just smiling and saying, I, you know, she did it. 
that was one of those things where so many of the listeners that when I've talked about other Janet Jackson albums or anything, a lot of people thought Control was the first album of of mm. of her career. And Jam and Lewis have been very specific saying, no, she had two albums prior. And if right. it weren't for those two, we wouldn't have had Control. That where she needed to go, it was oh, this oh. building block. I, I absolutely think so. And and I think um one of the things uh I don't I hope this is okay to talk about, but mm-hmm. um one of the things I, I don't I think it's okay. But you know, her, her bodyguards were her or a bodyguard was around her constantly. And that vibe was thick. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if I mean, I think she came into the studio where I was because there was nobody there. And I mm-hmm. was there and she could just kind of be by herself, kind of hiding out. But, you know, she couldn't stay very long. She would go. I mean, she would wouldn't never stay long and we never got a chance to engage. I would have loved to talk with her, but, you know, she'd sneak out again. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and from what I heard from other people, I mean, that guy was always around. Mm. And, you know, um, then I, I guess in that interim you know, she she matured and was able to create her own space for herself, which I'm really happy for. I mean, I I think she was very sweet, and I she I think she still is. I mean, from her interviews and all that, she seems like a very cool person. I just I wish I wish I could have talked to her more. Here you are, like you know, looking at working, working, and then all of a sudden you don't realize behind you for like the oh, past fifteen no. minutes, Janet. Jen. Oh no, it was and it was like spooky because I'd be doing it and then. Hmm. <laughs> You're like, what is happening? Oh, okay. <laughs> now we had another question from Joe from Brazil and said, they wanted to know, when did you find out that the album was going to be called Dream Street? Does it feel differently when you have a oh. song that ultimately is the title? <laughs> I did not know that. I did. I no. I had no idea. I mean, I just <laughs> thought we wrote a song and that's the end of it. It was so funny. I mean, well, I mean, but then you have to, you know, the lyricist is Pete Bellotti. I mean, by the way, Pete, background on Pete is, I mean, he's a scholar. Mm. He's a, a literary scholar. He speaks fluent German. And I mean, he's English, but he speaks fluent German. You know, I mean, that's part of the George. I'm not exactly sure her, how he got to Munich, but, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, he, uh, I think he's, a, he, I think he's a, a, he has a degree in old German. So he reads like Goethe. I mean, the guy who read like 20 Donna Summers hits. I mean, it's, I love this. It's That's the part that is so, <laughs> that that's the part that I love about being able to interview all of you to see where that, because these are little tidbits. Usually it's like, and so many of the guests have come on and said, James, usually somebody's like, oh, tell me about the drama that happened here or there or there. And it's like, they're like, you're trying to get to know us. I go, because what's important for the listeners too is, where were you at creatively? Where were you at? What brought you there? So now when I, when all of us listeners go back and listen to Dream Street and even the rest of the songs on there that you were a part of, we go, wow, this guy was going to be a physicist. Like, and then oh, right. went this way and then went this way. But then also it it enlightens us as to that kind of creative process going, you're not somebody who is, there are those people that were just day one. They said, I was just trained by music in school. That was it. Most of the people I've ever interviewed are like, I was training myself. I was doing all that, trying it out. Like I was 
daring to like suck as some of the people say where it's like right. just try something out like if it doesn't work just go on past it but also being open to whatever happens if something doesn't work then just keep going with Ooh, that. And that's a very that 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 idea of being able to move forward in spite of like not getting the addition, not getting um the the project that is job, uh that is alt seriously important. Another thing is when you're arranging or whatever, I guess we'll talk about that later, but whatever you're doing or composing, you cannot say you cannot blame yourself for something not completing and don't stop. In other words, if you have a song and you're going, I really like it. And then I don't know what to do. You move it aside and you wait for it to show up again. It'll show up. It'll come back. You'll think of something you say, oh, I know how to fix this or I know what I want to do with it. But don't give up anything. Everything that you're thinking is precious. It's 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 created. It's there. It's real. It's solid. It may not necessarily fit in the context of the moment in time. It may be something that you compose that you will not understand until twenty mm. years later. It it we do not discard anything because it means something. But you just don't know what the meaning is. That's the way I look at it. I have songs that I've composed over the years that I didn't even understand what I was doing. I was doing something. I didn't understand it until 20 years later. I listened back to it. You know, I have a tape of me, my composition, an hour's worth of music from the late 60s when I was hot on the, you know, Ravel Stravinsky thing. And there's some good ideas in there. I was just throwing them out, but I know how what to do with them now after 30 years. No, sorry. This is... 60, well, like 55 years ago. I look at 30. The listeners are like, wait, was this recorded <laughs> yeah. in the 90s? Yeah, no. Yeah, right. I know. I have a hard time with that. I mean, I have a hard time like knowing what whatever the time is like zero influence, it seems. Well, the, the funniest thing is the listeners have learned here is I'll get messages like, James, this is so interesting because some people are like, the guest might be like, James, can you remind me when that was released? And listeners are like, how do they not know? I was like, sometimes these songs are put to bed, if you will, like a year before it's released. And you're already working on four different projects. Sometimes project songs oh. come out differently. Not not everything comes out in that designated order. Absolutely. And so I'm I'm the, the, the music archivist here where somebody's like, I think I was working. I'm like, oh, that was during 1984, 1985. Like, oh. That's right. Oh, yes. I was like, yes. see, that I, is, I'm just here to that help That is definitely out. your job. That is your job. <laughs> you must do that. I mean, and and also the thing is, is that, you know, because you're so consumed by a particular album, you're consumed by the next record. I mean, being consumed by the album is important. So you actually, you have to leave it. You 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 finish it and you leave it and you move on. And now I become something else. Um, and that's really the joy of it. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I love producing because like, for example, you know, I did four records with Willie DeVille who was um, Mink DeVille's lead singer back in the late seventies. And I totally enjoyed that because I got to be Willie, you know, be, be with Willie and, and to get into his space. And it, it's, I, I mean, there's nothing like it. I mean, my style of producing. I mean, there's some producers who have to put their stamp on it. I end up doing that, but I end up doing it by being a shepherd of, you know, or a sherpa, depending on 
how you look at it um <laughs> of of the artist you know yeah and um yeah well, it's, it's and an interesting thing the cool thing is you know on the show at the end of every time an episode comes out i send links on where to purchase like the first run whether it's vinyl or something like purchase the albums on you know itunes things like that where it's like okay support these these people like if you can mm. have the ability to buy the vinyl go ahead buy it so in the past year and a half this is some fun information the song dream street itself charted in turkey at number 44 on the pop charts on itunes just in 2022 in poland just a month and a half ago it was number 31 the song dream street and additionally in slovakia last summer dream street the album went number one on all genre album charts on itunes and it was it's charted in i think about like six different countries just in the past year on itunes so congratulations on that that's just dream street the song and dream street the album i guess i gotta check up on my royalties on that <laughs> there I, you go <laughs> okay okay thank you very much for that information we'll get on that <laughs> Um, that's, that's, that's so cool. I love that. Hopping out for a quick second to remind you that you can join me on Patreon. There's going to be bonus content on there about so many of the great songs. And I dive a little deeper into some of these songs. You can find it www.originaldoll.com. And don't forget, add me on all the socials. You can find the links on there. Now back to the show. And I, I talk about the, the importance of this because many people are like, oh, but if it's number one on iTunes in Germany, is it as big as if it was the UK? I go... Yes, it is. Like people try to like minimize country to country. I'm like, no, 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 no. But but the great thing is this album that is about to be 40 years old next year charted with other and I don't like comparing other artists, but charted with other artists who had albums that came out that week with other big dance house albums that came out that week. There's Janet Jackson. There's other artists back and forth. And so I like to pull up all of these these facts because it also shows not only has the song still found an audience decades later, but it has that global appeal. And when mm. I was deep diving into the the first two uh, Janet albums, many people say, well, I grew up in France. Why didn't I get this album? And I talked about distribution and things like that. I go, oh, especially yeah. at the time. Oh, yeah. You didn't, most countries did not have access to this. I go, we're thinking of Janet Jackson now. Janet Jackson now wasn't Janet Jackson in the first album. And and, and the thing about that is is that um, different countries will make a choice, like the, the East, East Western Warner Brothers of one in the United States and East Western Warner Brothers in, um, uh, let's say, Germany. Um, they will look at their audiences differently. They have to, because culturally or you know musically culturally there's there are different priorities at a particular moment in time sometimes it's later sometimes you at some i hit in the u.s and then maybe two or three years later this for some reason this record takes off there and looks like the record company will say oh yeah let's do this here you know i mean it's hard to say uh i don't know whether i'm not sure whether dream street got that much distribution in europe but it did some yeah, it did. Time, it was but... it was limited. Yeah. And and I remember because going through all the research, I went through like like I had people sending facts from A and M. I had people sending because people from old labels in general would reach out and say, Oh, we love what you do. Here's some information to fill in the gaps of what oh, I said. Oh. And so what what's been great is a lot of the actual 
label people from back then are like, I will not be a guest on there because I was just an admin outside of that. Please keep it to the creatives. And I'm like, oh, I get what they mean too, but they've been, oh, able, to really? say, That's they've been nice. able to say, oh, well, you know, <laughs> this date was this one. And one of them was somebody put this out there and we talked about this uh, on a couple different episodes. It was like, people need to remember that in the eighties, Janet Jackson was still a black female artist, which right. there were still many countries in the world and a lot of the United States that still did not want to see a black female artist succeed. Right. They were not trying to market towards that. Especially, especially in the genre. I mean, that that record was not in a genre. I mean, you couldn't really exactly define the genre that that record was in. And and I mean, I think that that's what we were ultimately going after. We were treating her as an artist, you know, mm -hmm. and, and and incorporating bit, you know, just a world art, you know, global access of culture and everything like that, you know, style, um, including electronica, which was, you know, what we were really into that. Uh, especially I was, I mean, that was my, I mean, back going back to the, actually, I didn't think I completely finished that first question about the influences at the time. Mm -hmm. The influence was, I mean, I was highly into electronic music and electronic orchestration. And, um, you know, uh, I think that that influenced the, 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 the style of the record, which actually made it actually more globally accessible, but it, mm -hmm. it but they didn't promote it in that way at the time. Um, and it's all good. I mean, ultimately, it led to the next record. And, and as you say, she she learned through this record what she wanted and what she didn't want. And, you know, she didn't want guards on her, but, you know, she wanted to be out there and she went over. She left town <laughs> <laughs> to the Midwest. She came. <laughs> wow. That's a good idea. <laughs> The part that I've loved about seeing the evolution of any of these artists and, and shining a light on their music is when you look at, okay, what album, yes, Control was her her big commercial breakthrough. But like I go back to the Jam and Lewis thing where it's like, if it weren't for the previous two albums, we would mm. not have had Control. Like the yeah. whole Control was based on, and, and yeah. I think Janet Jackson even said, she's like, I liked making the albums, but I was just go in, record, and she was still doing the TV show. She was still doing all these other things where she was, was really like... spread out. She was yeah. and very much spread out. And and that's I mean, that that was a she had like her first blast in this period of time that she was able to go, OK, okay I like, this, this is it. Here we go. You know, that's the direction she figured it out. Well, and the, the, the great part is being able to talk to the creatives like you who were in there who were talking about this because the other thing too is when i pull up like the the you know liner notes of that it's funny because you're in this whole like block set it's like this song a this song b this song c and then all of a sudden it's like five songs and it's like part of this was and then it's your name your name, and it goes through where it like blocks it together i was like so wait so there was a collaborative part there which was different than i had seen before because in my mind as as a novice liner geek I would go and it's like, oh, one producer, arranger, da, 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 two, and it would be different. This was like, there was a cohesive group of people. Right. And I also feel like Janet Jackson now has only benefited from having mm. a cohesive group of people that right. continue. That's the whole Jam and Lewis aspect of it. Right. And so then 
Uh, I want to ask you this, that we had another question from Ivan in Israel, and he was asking, did you get to listen to any of the music from the first album? Did you know any of her music before you were in the studio working on what would be Dream Street? Because it wasn't well, like now where you could just pull up a streaming thing. Like, <laughs> that's the other thing people have to keep in mind is oh. that, like, you would have to go to a record store if they had it, or somebody would be like, this is what it is. Did you have any access to the music before, or were you coming in never really hearing her songs? No, no, I didn't. And, um, you know, I may, listen, I shouldn't say that. I may have heard something. I personally would not choose to do that. Um, you know, when I, um, uh, yeah, again, it's that focus thing mm -hmm. and it's, and it's a, uh, I, you know, however you want to describe it, it's an emotional thing. I want to be able to, I, you know, we were talking about go, going from one record to the other. I don't want to carry over that from that. I want to relearn, re-experience every artist so i i feel like i'm actually you know that's see this is the reason this is the reason why i never continued in pop music um i mean in pop pop music because yeah. i mean i was i mean you know a, a 40 whatever platinums and gold and grammy all that all that stuff that happened in the first 15 years of my career up until about 1995 but i was right from the beginning it was like i i'm there's something wrong with this and 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 i and, and i don't mean in the music or anything just i don't want the assembly line i don't i don't want it i don't mm -hmm. i i'm i just i i was in this because i i'm just basically selfish i'm an egotist i want to enjoy i want those emotions over and over again i'm addicted to that and you can't get that if you're not emotionally involved in the project. And it's difficult for me to be emotionally involved in pop music because it's not. Ultimately, I'm a classicist and a contextualist and mm. a, an experimentalist and a, and a, in a, you know, ultimately, of course, this period was great because it allowed me to do what I'm doing now. I don't I don't reject it. It just there came a time when I realized, much like Janet. I realized what my direction was. So um, the hearing of the thing previously, now back to the original question, your hearing thing of the, the, the thing about hearing was not so important because what it was, was the song and the context of her voice, hearing her voice um, and the, and writing around it and orchestrating around it and getting a feel for that. Now, I, I mean, I personally think that we could have spent more time on that, but I was, you know, I, I was a gear in a larger machine. Um, but still, I mean, it's the experimentation and the connection to the artist that is the most important mm -hmm. thing. Sometimes it doesn't happen for whatever reason, or it doesn't happen as thoroughly as it should be, but really ultimately that is it. Whether you're producing or whether you're a musician, it's not, I'm coming in doing the session and I'm leaving, which by the way, I did a lot of those sessions and, and it was annoying. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, in the beginning days, I worked on all kinds of Diane, Diane, Diana, Dion Warwick, Diana Ross, um, you know, all the plat, you know, the traditional, you know, so yeah. I, I really do go into the old school thing, even though, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, that, that wasn't where I ended up. 
So I had a lot of stories. I heard a lot of things. I, I saw, I recorded a lot. Of, I, I never felt comfortable in there. That was not my place. Mm. My place was emotional, skin on skin, serious blood, life, art, you know, confusion, all of mm -hmm. that. That's what I really thrived in. So, um, you know, eventually it was inevitable that I, I moved forward. But every time I work on a record, it was always a reinvention, absorbing what this thing was. Um, you know, sometimes pre-production just for myself could be three months before I worked with somebody. Listeners, I will be having our lovely guest here and everyone, we're going to pronounce his name correctly next time he comes. But <laughs> what's been great is you the people that you've worked with, it's like, it's not just this one project and these are the only people that work on that project and done. It's some of these people, you could have been A, worked on this project with artist, you know, B, this group, C, worked yeah. on artist C. And so for me, it's been really great. And that's why it's like being a liner geek going through that. I'm like, you've worked with so many people and the genre things and also so many people behind the scenes that continue to branch out in so many different ways. Mm. Like, it's not like, oh, here's the keyboardist for Sade and this is Sade's keyboardist and we're going this way sort of thing. This is like, no, they did this. And then, you know, Gene Simmons, like Katie Segal, I think was like a, a backing vocalist on a Gene oh, oh, Simmons oh. album in the oh, 70s. Oh, right. <laughs> right. And also, and also um, a big time with uh, Bette Midler. She was, she, she did Who a you, Whom you with. also worked with? Yeah. <laughs> wow. You really, ooh. <laughs> oh, but but I but I didn't meet I I I love that song, and I I didn't meet her until a couple of years later at Katie's house. Stop for a Christmas party, and we had the I, I adore her. Uh, Bet Bet Midler is just so sweet and funny and insightful. I mean, I spoke to her like thirty minutes at this party. I I you know funny like five years later i you know i finally meet her um but yeah it's it's a it's a it's very cool it's it's a very family oriented you know thing which is the reason why i can't leave la i mean i thought about moving here to berlin or you know uh, or london or whatever but and and i it it would work you know but it wouldn't work in the sense of i love these mm -hmm. these people i you know i he, even if we don't see any each other, but you know, every couple of months we'll be together or we play these gigs. I mean, you know, it's just it's fabulous. I can't I can't leave that, you know. See, and what we're gonna do, listeners, have no fear. We have more coming up, and please send questions because what we're gonna do is coming. This is the problem with you is that decades <laughs> and decades of artists, <laughs> decades and decades of genres. It's like me trying to whittle this down to so many different I, things. And what I've loved is the amount of questions that I got were across the board for your discography. It was not mm. just about Tori. It mm. was about this. It was mm -hmm. about that. It was about Katie Zagal, Beth Midler, all these things. And I just thought, well, I'm so glad this about is... that. I mean, I think it's I I'm I I like I like uh, talking about them. I love them. And so, listeners, please send those questions. Whether it's the DMs, emails, and everything, we have more coming <laughs> up. And this is the most insane thing, everyone. Once again, for every question that we get answered, we're going to get items donated. And for the episode where we talk about Tori Amos and and Tracy Chapman, we also have six different donors who are going to be donating six times 
the amount of things for every question that you answer. Because we, so if we get, you know, hygiene products for women in domestic abuse shelters and things like that, we're going to get six times as many now because we have these lovely donors who are huge fans of Tori Amos, who are huge fans of Tracy Chapman, but also ultimately they're a huge fan of yours as a collaborator amongst all of these great Mm -hmm. artists. And in most of these situations, you didn't just work on one and done. One one keyboarding track done. That's it. In many of these people, it's like the Dream Street album. You're like on half of that album. Most, <laughs> mostly. I mean, there are some exceptions, but even those were were important to me. I mean, like Bette Midler's track, for example. I mean, I adored that track. It was one, but, you know. But yeah, mostly, mostly that. I mean, it has to be... I, I'm happy with that because you can create a, a a world a sound by not just kind of i don't think you can just drop in i mean with in the case of bet midler actually i worked on that for a while that was a for one song that was a long process of absorption you know discussion with the composer the composer was the producer sorry my my ancient brain is there's some <laughs> gaps in there and and you know and whatever but anyway so but she um uh uh but any whatever it it it's you're right <laughs> most of them are long long term things which i'm i'm really uh, thankful for everyone i would like to thank so much our lovely guest now here's the thing you can call him jps you can call him we are going to clear up all this because many of you were like how do we properly say these names or how do we make sure the other thing too is i'm going to try to make sure we can keep updating the Wikipedia pages and every other page so that you get the accurate information to honor these guests. So thank you so much for being here. John Philip Chanel. It was my pleasure. My God, great questions. Absolutely fantastic. I appreciate that. And and you, you, you did, you did good. Thank you so much for listening. And Janet Jackson fans, family, Jan fam. If you are a fan of Janet Jackson and haven't checked out my other interviews with her producer, songwriters, and more, go check out, you know, go to your preferred streaming platform. And don't forget to subscribe, to rate, review. That is the way we can keep getting more and more people listening to the show and get more and more great questions worldwide. And if you follow me on Twitter at James Rodriguez or Instagram or TikTok or even YouTube, you'll see I've been posting videos about my journeys throughout the world. There's this whole notion and this misnomer, if you will, of Janet Jackson only being successful and known here in the United States. Well, I've taken it upon myself to prove that otherwise. So if you go through, you can see all the different countries I've been traveling to where I highlight Janet Jackson's discography that not only was charting in the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, but also recently because hashtag Janet's Legacy Matters. Big shout out to Mike and everyone else that keeps the Jan fam going. My name is James Rodriguez. I'll see you on the flip side. Early morning
All right, everyone, I'd like to welcome you back to the original dial. And once again, we have returning guest Steve Lunt. And today we're going to be talking about a fantastic song and kind of a cool history behind it. So for those who don't know, we're going to be talking about Lucky, which is the second single from Britney Spears' Oops album. It hit U.S. radio in May of 2000 in Trent, New Jersey, had a slow roll afterwards. Everyone may say, wait, but I thought this didn't come out until July. Demand for Britney Spears' music was so high that around the release of the album, many cities were playing the album. Many cities were playing different songs. Now, the song was written by Max Martin, Rami, and Alexander I might pronounce this guy's last name wrong, so I apologize. Cromland? Cromland? Right. Okay, and produced by Max and Rami. Now, this is what's truly amazing. In the second album, second single, the song went number one in 10 countries, including going number one on the UK indie charts. And Steve, can you explain to people really quick before I continue this, why it was an indie chart? Why, if we think of Jive Records as this global thing, what should the listener know about Jive at the time, globally, back in 2000? Right. Well, we were technically a, an independent label. Um, we weren't owned by a major. Uh, we, uh, I'm not quite sure of the exact date when, um, when Jive had um, financial input from RCA, but we weren't owned by them. We still had the majority shares in a, in the own in our own company so we were technically a, an indie label and people get shocked all the time when i've talked about britney spears's success they're like wait how was she number one on an indie thing she's not indie and it's like an independent label this is an independent label right. so the song lucky went golden austria belgium canada germany it went platinum in australia new zealand and sweden and silver in the uk and i bring this up because i wanted to still talk about the fact that this is an American artist who was doing pop music at the turn of the century, and it was still selling. And not just in the UK, not just in the US, that this had global appeal. So why don't we rewind back to kind of the beginning about how Lucky got created? Because there, these are a couple theories that I know that you'll be able to clarify. Many people said this song, amongst most of these, Britney kind of created with some other people. The ideas were all done. And then the the songs were created that when she went somewhere, she decided to go and create these songs that the songs were not kind of prepped for her already at that point. So that's one of the things many people think all of Oops, the album was created after the baby tour was done. And as we know, that's not the case. The other thing is there's something that I found very interesting and the song had a different composition. There was something different about the song that never was released in that way. So I want to talk a little bit about that. So let's go back. <laughs> this oops part with Lucky, where the song seems so Britney at the time, that it's about a girl being famous, but she's lucky. Can you talk about that kind of pre-production of this? Were a lot of these songs that we haven't talked about yet from the Oops album, were they kind of already in the works before Britney even got to the studio, or was it it was created in the studio with Britney? Um no, um, Brittany was not part of the creative process. One of the one of the writers on it, or, or anything like that. This was put together by by Max Rami and Alexander Cronland, who is more than likely the main lyricist on it. Um, the concept might have come from Max. Um, I can't be sure about that, but uh, but the lyric is is kind of 
uh, the full lyric is kind of beyond where Max's uh, language skills <laughs> would go with regards to lyrics. Now the music is definitely all him and uh, and Rami, but uh, I should imagine Alex did at least ninety percent of the lyrics. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and um, you know, it's a it's a fictional story, you know, which they which they wrote with, you know, with the knowledge that that it could also be telling the story of of Britney, you know, they, that's why in the video is the movie star and everything. And it's sort of like a, an age old tale. It's not a new tale. So it's sort of, you know, it could have been Marilyn Monroe. It could have been a lot of people, you know, like uh, um, in this, it had a very fifties feel to it. And there was a, a, a little bit of that in the music, but definitely a lot of that in the, uh, in the video. So, mm -hmm. um, so that theme sort of seemed to work for Britney, you know, um, very well. And the the part that you reference about the thing that was unusual about its initial um, uh, version of it when it was first recorded um, was that it had a sample from a very well known uh, movie, uh, a classic movie, not a not really a modern one, but a classic one. Mm -hmm. And I won't tell you which one it it was because <laughs> uh, um, we weren't allowed to use the sample. Uh, we mm -hmm. applied for uh, for permission from the movie company. And they wouldn't allow it, so we had to cut it out totally. But it was good; it was very good. Um, and uh, people are just going to have to guess what it is because I'm not going to say. Um, <laughs> See, well, and this is something that I wanted to bring up because I, you, and I had talked about this before, and I think some of the listeners may say, "Wait, but this is Britney Spears, 2000 Britney Spears. Why would they, a studio? Why would a studio not allow that?" You know, and I think there's lots of things always in play because we, you and I talked before about the fact that, yes, Britney Spears was well known in the music industry doing that. But many times other mediums are very loyal to saying, no, 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 you're not taking this movie thing right. to put it in a pop song. Because there's also some like, we never, whether the people like Britney Spears or not, there are those titles, if you will those movies where they just may have had some contract where it said, you're never allowed to use this in any other way other than, you know, the film. Right. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know what, what their contracts said, obviously none of us do, mm -hmm. but with a movie like this, which is one of the all time classic movies, and it's one of the all time classic lines from a, from a classic movie. It's um, I think, you know, the movie company would have to be very, and the owners of the copyright would have to be, very protective um, towards that and and we're dealing with hollywood here we're not just dealing with a lawyer who's in the music mm -hmm. business we're dealing with hollywood which is a whole different animal um and and so the lawyers basically just came back and said i'm sorry we won't allow it it was no explanation given it was just like you know you know tough yep. sorry decline that's it decline <laughs> find something else so find someone else's movie yeah you know because in you know because in their light they don't want anything that seems like it's it's cheapening um, mm -hmm. you know, their, their, um, their brand, if you like, you know, and, and while Britney fans and music fans wouldn't at the time, wouldn't have thought Britney was cheapening it in the eyes of Hollywood, you know, it, it, uh, they would have a slightly different view of that. You know, they wouldn't know that Britney was going to turn out to be an icon at the time. She was still like on a, just, you know, just on a second album and it was a teen thing with lots of kids screaming and all the rest of it. This mm -hmm. is how Hollywood would see it. And to them, that would be kind of a, a, a cheap use 
not financially just a cheap stylistic use of of something that's that's a major part of their brand yeah. so when this doesn't get cleared then the creatives kind of have to go back to the drawing board and say we need something in place of what right. was supposed to go there mm -hmm. and the thing that I think is interesting is you and I talked before about, and, and listeners that have listened to the other um, interviews, is by the time that the album was out, you all already knew what the second and most likely third single was going to be before, because there was all this marketing and everything in there. So with Lucky being the second single, this stuff was all trying to be figured out well before the album was ever released, because this was the end of 1999 that it's like you have to go back to the drawing board. So time is of the essence. So for you then looking at Oops, the single, do you even now looking back to Lucky, Stronger, Don't Let Me Be the Last to Know, do you think that the flow makes sense now in what was the Oops, quote unquote, era? Do you think that it was a, the, do you think that this was the best rate creatively to have Oops, then lucky, stronger, and don't let me be the last to know. Yeah. Now what I, we know think, now with the whole album. Yeah, I think so. I think the only thing that would have been stronger is if it had gone, um, oops, I did it again. One kiss from you when your eyes say it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, for people who aren't in on that joke, because uh, um, I wrote one kiss from you and I produced uh, when your eyes say it. So <laughs> it's, just, uh, it's just a joke, people. Don't freak out. Uh, no, like, I think, the, yeah, <laughs> I think the, um, the, the order, the order was right. You know, I mean, oops was a, was a no brainer to start off with. It was like, you know, you one more time part two, if you like, you know, mm -hmm. I, in, to some degree. And it gave a continuity to, it gave a, a leap off point so she could grow from there. You know, the, it didn't immediately jump to another planet on the second album from people loving the first one. You felt some sort of continuity. Like, okay, we're going to get a bit more of the same. This isn't changing too much. Um, and then Lucky, you know, stepped it up a little bit from there because it was a story and song, you know, type of record with a very movie visual to it. So, you know, that one really worked worked nicely as a second single. I think I can't think of any of the other ones as being a second single when I look at the uh, the track listing now. And I think I want the, the listeners to not gloss over is what you said is at the time, like, this is the MTV era where MTV is really pushing those sales that you, to your point, the visuals for this video synced so well with what the song was. And many of us, that's how we, at that time, when you heard, oops, I did it again, it was because you watched the making the video where they kind of did mm -hmm. it all at once. You didn't have six months before of the song was out with lucky. You had, you, you know, of course you knew that lucky by the time the album came out, but I think what was great is the utilization of, okay, this market is watching the videos. Not only are they watching the videos, but they're buying the albums and then buying the ticket sales. So the other thing I wanted to ask is when you look at those artists where you see their kind of story about how they are famous, they're getting everything they want, but at the same time, there's still that loneliness factor. And I think it was during an interview where Brittany said basically like, you know, I kind of get annoyed with celebrities who are like, uh-huh, it's so difficult. She's like, which yeah. I thought as an 18-year-old <clears throat> human being, I thought, okay, 
she get and i feel like as the the outsider i feel like she got what her place was where she's like i'm fortunate enough to be doing this and i'm not going to be belly aching about like she's like i acknowledge that there are terrible times she's like but i wouldn't change it for anything so how important is it creatively and this is me talking to you the creative how important is it creatively for an artist to have this sort of song the sort of like you can connect with me because even though i'm up here and have it all i'm still a human being how important is that for a young artist to have for that connection with her audience or their audience um in britain's case it was it was important because i think um i mean you know in the in the clip that i think you're talking about um she sounds pretty damn happy to be honest with you you know when she says yeah and i have my depressed moments and i'm sure she does like and she even says like like everybody does you know i have my depressed mm -hmm. moments but i wouldn't give this up for the world i love this i love this life you know she mm -hmm. said that so um and that's that's the britney that i knew you know who who, who loved it she wasn't sort of hating it and oh, i've got to do this now i mean she was all full of energy and vimto she was ready to go you know at, at any at any time um and she was loving it uh, at that point, you know, so it sort of gave it gave a different viewpoint. And I think when she was saying that, I think it was more to f when she, because it gave her a reason to explain the song and to and give herself ownership mm -hmm. of it as a, as a performer. You know, she could say, yeah, I identify with this lyric as opposed to, yeah, this is about my life. You know, I mm -hmm. don't think she wasn't saying that um, because it wasn't really, you know, yeah. as far as we know about her life now, you know, everyone's got their private side which 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 you know nobody knows and including myself mm -hmm. um so you know who knows what was really going on inside but but in all my dealings with her she was she was that happy girl at this point totally driven didn't need anyone to sort of you know, egg her on to do anything she was her own motivator and she um you know and as she says you know like like any especially you know, somebody in their in their teens, their late teens, they're just, you know, they do get depressed. And sometimes it's so silly crap, you know, mm -hmm. just just stuff, you know, just life that they're having to deal with for the first time as a teenager. And it gets on top of them. But there was nothing that was depressed about, her, you know, in, a, in the way that we think of depression now, you know, mm -hmm. just like well, just like life getting in the way of a teenager enjoying herself, you know. Well, and what I always found fascinating was there are so many times where people throughout her career, and, and you know this and you've seen interviews, people and everything, where so many times people try to take, I was the one who told Britney to do this song. I was the one who created this one song. And it's like, and it, there are times where it's like, it makes Britney Spears seem like this one dimensional character yeah. that does it. And I'm talking, and for the listeners, I'm talking you know, pre my prerogative greatest hits. I'm talking like, we're talking this specifically. And so many people talked about that. They said, you know, Britney Spears wanted to be a dancer, a performer. She wanted this. And so when she went into these, you know, studio sessions, she's like, you guys know what you're doing. I like what you do. And she always talked about being a fan of Max Martin's music right. with Robin and sync, things like that backstreet boys. And so I think there's a lot of people who are like, oh, I helped Britney Spears make Lucky, or we talked about, it, and that's how Oops got made. And it's everyone has yeah. been very clear about the fact that there was a bunch of songs that were already percolating. That they were like, the moment we can get Britney 
in the studio, we're going to go to town on this because as we learned in previous episodes, several Oop songs were actually recorded during the baby era, if you will. Right. So then these other ones were the ones that were like, hey, we're ready to go. But I think also you can tell at the time when Britney was performing these songs that there was the connection to it, that it was a genuine feeling. And I think that's when I fell in love with the performer that she is, where she could sell a song. Completely. Yeah. She's yeah. on stage. So with like Lucky, it's like, I feel you, girl. Like, I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, oh, this is Roger Trump for pop music. I'm throwing all that in there. But yeah. for you, and, then... it's a, and it's such a great, it's such a great song, too. And just musically and production wise, I mean. Hopping up for a quick second to remind you to join me on Patreon. Just go to www.theoriginaldial.com. Thank you so much for your support. Big shout out to all the Patreon supporters. Now back to the show. You know, I mean, it's just pure pop. It's just like in a in a class of its own. You know, the this, the the material, the the records that that Max Martin was making, and uh, you know, and 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 Max will be the first to tell you he can't make those records without having a star, you know, to work with. And, uh, and because somebody doesn't, because the artist doesn't write the lyrics or write the music, doesn't make them less important, you know, it, mm -hmm. because every writer and producer needs that star to be able to sell what they're doing properly. You know, you could have uh, you or I singing um, Lucky and Trust Me and being in the video and Trust Me, it would suck, you know, like, <laughs> um, no offense. In agreement. <laughs> but, um, you know, but then Britney, when Britney's singing it and Britney's performing it and Britney's doing the video, you know, it's killer. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's the same way and you can take it back. I mean, you know, when I was growing up, my dad used to tell me about Frank Sinatra and everything. And Frank Sinatra never wrote his own stuff, but he had he brought his own style to things. And those songs are now considered his songs, you know, mm -hmm. because of his own styles. I was never really a big fan, but just the idea um, that that the the singer themselves bring so much to the table that they can't be discounted as being a creative force because what they bring is the thing mm -hmm. that makes it happen it wouldn't happen without them it would just be a demo you know with a demo mm -hmm. singer when i had reached out to rupert holmes who did you got it all you and all. you know yep. pina colada i had uh, messaged him and i said you know what do you think about the cover of you got it all and and he had messaged me back and he basically said he'd love that Britney put her own spin on it, that it was still, it was, she made a song that was never, I mean, the song was basically created, you know, when she was like a year old kind of thing, but that she was able to put her Britney-ness on that mm -hmm. to make it her own. And I think that's the best part about a storyteller. We look at musicals, Broadway well, musicals. Think, it's, excuse me interrupting. Cause on, on the subject of that, I think I might've told you in a previous episode, but it's, it's relevant now for anyone who's listening with regards to you got it all because that was the first song that i really wanted her to do that 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 um that made the difference that in fact sealed the deal with getting her turning her her sort of temporary her development uh, recording contract into a final full-on recording contract with jive um and it was on my first trip down to kentwood in, Le in louisiana louisiana excuse me um to uh to see you know meet her, her parents and uh, and um, and uh, you know extended family um, in Kentwood and 
I remember very distinctly sitting outside in in the father's truck and we were playing um, and I was talking to her about Robin and, and this that, and the other, just trying to get a feel for who she was and what she liked. And first of all, she said that um, she said, yeah, I like that. That Robin song is great, but it's in black and white. And and I really don't want to be that. And I said, well, how would you do it? Um, and she said, well, it would be in color for a start. And I'd be wearing a little mini skirt. And I'd be dancing. And it was mm-hmm. that simple. It was really that clear cut for her, you know. Um, and and I and at the time she was 15, and I thought, you know, that's exactly what her peers would want her to do and say. And then um, and then with regards to you got it all, then I it was you know, I, I put in the cassette, it was audio cassettes at that point, and I put in the cassette in the car of You Got It All. And I said, Do you know this song? And she was like, listen to it for a little bit. She said, yeah, I think I do. I, th- I think I know this one. This, I like this song. And then and then she started to sing along with it. And, you know, sing along with the Jets version of it. And over the top, she was doing these like little vocal turns and little, little you know, soulful things she was putting into it. Mm-hmm. And you could see she was already just on a first run through, just making it her own. You know, and that's what sold me. I mean, right there and then I was sold. And I told Clive Calder when I got back to New York, I said, I said, I think she's got it. She's got a little style of her own that, that it's, you know, even for a 15 year old yet, it is not fully developed yet, you know, but you can see there's a natural thing there that that, uh, that she has that uh, that should be encouraged, you know. So that it was a very important song in her, uh, in, in her development as an artist. This remix was produced by one of our guests. If you go through, you'll find him in many episodes, Alex G. Well, and I think that's something that so many of the listeners have messaged me about saying, What aside from just Britney Spears being Britney Spears is that they love the fact that she also acknowledges other artists, other singers. Like there was, there are artists that will never put on an Instagram story, you know, some quote unquote competitor song with them dancing to it. Do you know what I mean? Like, but Britney Spears in all the interviews, and I was able to say, and you and I talked about this, I was able to see home videos, interviews and things like that, that have not been released as of yet where she talks about, her love of music i don't want i mean we know that she was a hard worker we know that she was given that that opportunity kind of went with it but also she was knowledgeable of the music that was out at the time she everyone talked about when they would spend time with her they said you know she said she was thinking about taking a break and then she's like uh nope i see this other person coming up here like i'm not (laughs) taking that space where people from all the different albums i've talked to that worked in the studio with her, that spent time with her even outside of the studio said, Britney Spears had this drive that she wanted to keep being at the top of her game. And so she thought at any moment, if she stopped doing it, she's like, mm, no, 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 no. And then, but also the constant, oh, Britney, you don't like the singer A or the singer B. And you could see it was always pitting her against these other women, but you look back now and Britney Spears talked about, I love Paula Cole, Natalie, uh, Imbruglia, Pink, all of these people. And I think 
that's a testament of her just being a lover of music. When you see her dancing with all these different videos and songs, you're like, she she loves Enigma, which I love Enigma. Mm-hmm. So when she's playing that, people were messaging me, James, can you talk about this Enigma song? Who is Enigma? I was like, they're a fantastic group. I go, it's, but it's not what you would think would be in Britney Spears' repertoire mm-hmm. of music knowledge. Well, and there's it, always it, something it, a little bit different for her. Yeah, I mean, you you know, you said about about that she was aware of other people coming up around her. I mean, you know, we shouldn't understate the Christina Aguilera, um, you know, the 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 competition there because people, you know, want to think, oh, yes, it wasn't really a competition. They were friends and everything. Yeah, it's true to a certain degree, but the the uh, the competitiveness that Britney felt, uh, you know. I think that way sort of way it outweighed the friendship part of it um she was definitely aware of her and she definitely wanted to stay ahead and she was well aware of the differences in their voices and uh and christina was this like you know singer like christina is i mean from day one mm-hmm. she was like that and Brittany really didn't want to go there so in fact i was looking on youtube um, earlier today when I knew we were doing this and I was looking up, I was just going through the versions of Stronger with her doing it live and everything and I started reading all the old same old crap comments about about how like you know the record company and her managers ruined her voice with making a sing in this baby voice and, the, and that whole thing came up and my blood started boiling again <laughs> so I can blame you for that okay. yeah, and I so uh, yeah and I was you know and it started getting me going again you know because she she knew what she wanted to be and she sang that way from day one um and and i can only believe that part of it is because she felt like she was never going to be able to compete with christina aguilera in that type of range and power that christina's got um because she couldn't you know britney never sang like that you know those early videos of her you know star search time period you know where she's doing like uh you know which is young like really young trying to do that little broadway you know thing mm-hmm. but that was never really how she sang you know that was more of a forced voice than the one she came to us with she came to us with this softish sort of soulful britney voice the one that you hear on on the hold of the baby one more time album you know um sometimes you know baby one more time those are the that's her voice right there and and you know all all power to um to Christina because she's got incredible voice you know, but um but Brittany wanted to do her thing and she wanted to stay one step ahead, so and she knew that and by the way and she also knew that Christina couldn't do her voice, which is even more to the point you know mm-hmm. um, neither could do the other one's voice so the you know, the, the competition with who's going to be more successful doing what they do it wasn't like can I out sing you that was never. Mm-hmm. That was never the, you know, it was, can I, can I out success you? No. Yeah. Well, and something that we've talked about, and for those listeners, we have episodes where we talk about the baby voice, the development, go back through whatever platform you're listening on. But the one thing I wanted to point out is there's the continual, oh, Britney Spears, that deep voice. Why don't they use more deep voice in this and that? And I think people get in, in generic, generic terms, let's say. Yeah. People think that she has like this bass voice, which she doesn't. She She has a tone that is lower. And I say with Pink, Pink is somebody, and I go, listeners, if you go, if you listen to Pink, she sounds like she's singing low, 
but there are notes that pink is singing that are in that upper register that are so high and i think that that's people get confused with people get tone confused because between, you can... tone, between tone and pitch and they're yep. two different things i mean uh, let's see if we can explain it here um tone is the difference between like if if there's a note just like ah uh, you can sing it like ah uh, like in a you know in a breathy voice or you can go ah uh, you know mm -hmm. and it's the same note and it's it's not deeper or anything it's it's a difference in tonality um mm -hmm. that was a horrible rendition of that note intentionally by the way um but um <laughs> the um but if you're talking about notes and then you go you know ah and ah uh, that's an octave beneath that's mm -hmm. a difference in in uh in in pitch and Brittany never sang down there she never had a deep voice um mm -hmm. she had a different tone when she was a kid and she had this you know like you know trying to be like mariah like just copying mariah because that's all she was doing really like a broadway mm -hmm. version of mariah um but she never she never had a deep voice so this baby voice thing is that case she started singing breathy you know a lot more breathily in, in certain songs um, mm -hmm. so if that's what people think is the baby voice because it's breathy but it's not like we made a sing up here like this you know mm -hmm. nobody made a sing anyway well and that's something where so many of the listeners after we released the episode talking about that they said oh i guess not there were people that were like no 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 there's got to be some low songs so then they would pull up and go there were people that there were, oh my friend plays the piano played it and they're like oh i guess i thought that song was lower than it was but those notes are the same as these notes which sound higher because right you know she can do that and i want to point out that i've always talked about the fact that with britney with another artist britney did baby one more time perfectly there's other people who can technically go oh i can hit the and whatever but there was something there's the soul of britney that often gets lost that's what she brings to the song and no one can do the songs no one can do toxic the way she did toxic no right. one can do you know what i mean like use yeah. those songs but i think we just and this is what i love about having you on here and so many of the the other creatives and musicians and artists where we sometimes are just like oh it's the deep voice we like her deep voice we like her bass voice it's like she's not deep. if you think about every person she's she talks about janet jackson madonna all these people none of them are singing these songs that you that are like you know operatic all the way at the top right. and then you right. know these bass or or you know no. baritone voices and i think the other thing is people need to remember this is still pop music you're not finding many pop songs that are outside of the i don't know what to say the king's uh notes do you know what i mean like you right. don't have these songs that are all over the place these kate bush let's go crazy throughout the whole right. thing you right. don't have that on in pop music or there might be some but that's not what was happening during this time so no, it certainly wasn't at that time you listen to the backstreet boys and you listen to in sync and you listen to like a lot of the boy bands i mean there were singers within those boy bands who who wailed a little bit but it was still pretty much within the same area it wasn't like they weren't wailing like boys to men were for instance you know mm -hmm. you know which is more r&b like and they were like you know wailing all over the place it was like taking it to church you know like that that wasn't happening in the in the white pop uh, field no i mean christy Aguilera, you know bless her i mean she can sing like that you know um but there's not many who can and and you'd be a fool to try and compete with her because you'd most probably come out you must probably come out second best you know mm -hmm. most people would you know if you tried to compete with mariah or with uh christina 
and we were all smart enough and Brittany certainly was smart enough to know, you know, I'm not going there, you know, mm-hmm. I've got my own thing, you know, let her 100%. be jealous of my thing, not the other way around. So then as we wrap up this part about lucky, now everyone have no fear, just to let you know, Steve and I have done pretty much a track by track of the first four albums and some of the chaotic album and some of the, my prerogative album. And we've been releasing these episodes. We're kind of breaking them down to honor each song because I think I don't want people to miss out that there were creatives behind each of these songs. There were people that spent time in doing things. Oftentimes, Max Martin would create, you know, the lion's share of a song and then get the artist in because they were busy touring this and that. So even though it may have taken Britney, you know, two days to record, you know, four songs, let's, let's just say that there were still so many hours that were done before and even after she left the studio. And that's why I love kind of separating these songs to kind of let them shine because they were all great songs and they shouldn't be overlooked. Lucky had that retro sound. Her releasing that song, me as a, as a fan of, of hers and not in the music industry, I thought it was so clever because Oops was kind of more of the same. And I'm like, oh, I like this. Lucky was sonically the game changer for me. And I think I fell in love with Lucky because I loved Oops, I Did It Again. Then I fell in love with Stronger because I liked Lucky. Each song was sonically different and it was a more mature, I feel like Rami, Max, Mart, all of them were also maturing as artists and creatives. Yeah, and yeah I think- their, their own personal tastes, you know, were, were, were changing with regards to, uh, uh, to what they wanted to write and produce as well. They were, as you say, they were maturing. So it was in perfect sync with what Brittany wanted to do. There you go. So everyone, take a listen to Lucky. And there's a bunch of great remixes too. And I've been able to interview several of the producers who worked on the remixes from Alex G to Davidson Ospina to Jack D. Elliott, Dave Day. There's a bunch of just remix producers of the different Britney songs that are there. Good ones too. Those are good ones. This is like the height of remixes that I loved. I loved it. All right. Well, Steve, thank you so much for being here today on The Original Doll. I truly appreciate it. It's my pleasure, James. Don't forget to rate and review this on your preferred streaming platform and make sure that you follow because these episodes are going to come out as soon as we can and we're trying to release them globally at the same time. So the best way to get notified right away, make sure you subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Thank you so much and we'll be back very soon. See you on the flip side.